Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, uh, we just about think this show is going to be better than the 49ers draft hats, which are basically just a step above dog poop on your head. Dante Johnson is now a Seattle Seahawk. Remember this when it comes to daily fantasy, because you're going to want to start 49ers wide receivers. And now, without further ado, we bring you the Day 2 and Beyond Draft Pod, where we talk about offensive players that are not offensive, but rather ones that we hope to draft on Day 2 and Beyond. I'm always good for an offense pun. At least that one repeatedly over and over and over. <laughs> hey, I mean, uh, when you got something that works, you know, you just keep going back to it. That's right. You got to go back to the well. You got to yep. go back to the well. But this week, we, last week, of course, we talked about uh, premium options at number nine. And we debuted our Hey, Harold Landry is the best option here. Lots of lots of people reacted, uh, <laughs> I think, to that to that statement. Lots of that guy's dog poop. That guy's bad. Marcus Davenport, all all manner of different things. I thought it was uh, it was good and fun to go through all those comments. People have strong feelings about the draft. Uh, yes, I mean, unsurprisingly, right? Like people have strong feelings on most NFL things. They should have stronger feelings about this draft hat because if you haven't seen this draft it's, hat, it's awful. Like it's they're bad. all it's it's not just the Niners one. Like there are plenty that are worse. Like the yeah. Seahawks, for instance, is is really terrible. Um, but they're all bad. This was a terrible idea. The Seahawks one looked like someone tried to, dr- to draw the number 12 with an Etch-A-Sketch while drunk. <laughs> it looks bad. Uh, it's not, not great. It's not great. So this podcast is going to be all about prospects on offense for days two and three. Really what we're going to try and do over the next uh, 60 minutes or so is try to identify our best day two and beyond options. And we're using our player evaluation framework to help. So remember the framework that we've been using over the course of the last few weeks. We're looking for players with uh, athletic profile that have production at co- at the collegiate level. And this can be both numeric production or, st- or, or kind of your traditional stat production. But more specifically, we're looking at PFF production or per snap production. We're also going to be looking at their traits, what they do well, where they win, where they don't, as well as a positional value. Now, of course, with these day two and later prospects, you're probably going to be missing something on that list. You're not going to have all of those things put together because if you did, then you would have probably been in one of our previous podcasts (laughs) where we're talking about premium and non-premium positions. So these are really going to be players that intrigue us for one reason or another, but they're probably not going to be complete prospects. Yeah, and I think you'll find as we get through a lot of these names, right, that the thing that we kind of prefer here, because, yeah, you you could find players in the mid, late rounds that are just kind of like, okay in all of those areas right they're kind of middle of the road there but i don't know that that's really the best strategy to go i would rather have somebody that's at least really good at like one or two of those areas and and try to really work with the strengths that they have and play to where they win right which is something that we uh talk about a lot so you'll find that we have some players in there that are very good athletes but for one reason or another didn't really put it all together uh from a production standpoint or we'll have a couple players in there that produce very well but maybe a little bit more limited on the athletic side of things. So I think those are the kind of players that you're really looking for as you move further down the draft board. So I'm curious what your thoughts on on this kind of shift and not shift in strategy, but on these two philosophical strategic, uh, I guess, roads that you might take. I, I feel like on this podcast, David, we've always been of the opinion that especially when you get to later rounds, you want to draft the athlete. You want to draft the guy with the high spark score and and then kind of see where it plays out because you can't teach athleticism, but you can try and teach other things. This is how you end up with the Adrian Colberts of the world. Adam Peters, in an interview, specifically said that they were looking for a height, weight, speed guy when they drafted Colbert 
And it turns out that they were pleasantly surprised. But Sam Monson on the PFF podcast rose. He kind of brought up a different point. He said, well, there's not a lot of time in the NFL anymore to really coach players up or spend as much time as you'd want to because of CBA restrictions and all manner of different things. And then during the season, you basically have to give all your reps to your starters because you just don't have that many. So really what you what you should do in later rounds is maybe prefer the player with production because you know at least that translates. And you know that if he won with his hands as an edge rusher in college, well, he can translate that skill to the NFL. Or if he's a very good route runner in college, well, he can translate that to the NFL. The example in 49er land would be Trent Taylor. Not a height, weight, speed guy, but he did have the one key kind of speed thing that you needed in, in the three cone and change of direction. And the guy had ridiculous hands. He had like a 99 point something drop or catch rate in college. So do you kind of lean one way or the other? Or do you think like both are fine? You just got to get something where they excel someplace late for the potential. Yeah, I think it's it's more the latter there where I think you want to lean to a player that that is either really, really athletic there and offers a lot of a lot of upside, right? Because we talk about the athletic ability uh, in a lot of ways sets the ceiling for the player. You know, there are very few great players that aren't also really good athletes. So I, I think you either go that direction or you go to the player that has production. I think like, um, you know, Chris Borland was probably a good example in recent 49ers history of a player that didn't have the athletic ability, but produced at a very high level in college and you take a guy like that in the middle rounds, right? And I also think it depends a little bit on the position that you're going to be going with. I think athleticism is more important at some positions than, than it is with other ones, right? Positions so, that require a lot of athleticism, maybe? <laughs> right, yeah. I think, um, you know, positions like edge, we, we tend to find that, uh, you know, really important there. I think it's really tough to win if you're a cornerback that doesn't have athleticism, right? So I think you you can find guys more in the middle of the field, maybe, that are that are better producers and can be a little bit light on the athleticism side um, and kind of go that way. But I think, yeah, the the wrong answer is trying to find a guy that's just kind of like, okay at all of them. Like that guy isn't going to do anything for you. Yeah. So I just thought it was a really interesting discussion, a really a really interesting thought that Sam brought up on the PFF podcast. So I thought it'd be good to bring up here, especially because I think it's going to be relevant as we talked about some of these players that are going to be later round prospects because they are going to have one of these things missing. And so we're really going to try and hone in on what they do well, where they win and how specifically that can help the 49ers. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to try and and find those players and talk about a couple people that intrigue us. What we're not going to do is we're not going to try and mock draft exactly what the 49ers are going to do or who they're going to draft, nor are we going to guess exactly what round these players will, will go in. We don't know. No one really knows. Everyone's just kind of making their best guess. And even Todd McShay, you know, he's got like a what I think teams will do mock draft and what I would do mock draft. We're not going to do either of those things. (laughs) We're just going to talk about these prospects. We're going to give some context in terms of their position ranks, both from Pro Football Focus and inside the pile on ITP, because we really respect the work that they do. And and we've been through similar kind of rigors with the Scouting Academy. So we know what that that kind of world, we have a bit more familiarity with that world. But that's pretty much it. We're going to talk about some of the guys that intrigue us. We're going to talk about what the positions, what we hope to get out of the draft for the 49ers. And for this draft, we're going to talk about receivers, or for this podcast, receivers, running backs, uh, and tight ends. We really wanted to get to offensive linemen, uh, but David, what the hell happened? Uh, Time. Time. uh, Wedding planning happened. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was just a a situation we wanted to get a look, especially at guard, right? I think that's the 
the spot that we kind of expect a player to get taken likely at some point in this draft. Um, we'll see. You know, we we may try to squeeze in a couple of guys if we get some time before next week's uh, episode on defensive players. Um, just kind of see how it goes. But yeah, for right now, skill position guys were kind of the focus and, and really weren't able to get to a point where we felt comfortable talking about any of the offensive line prospects. In theory, I really wanted to cover offensive linemen i really wanted to watch a couple of them and then i just totally got sidetracked by some of the skill position players and i was looking at my time last night and i was like yeah i don't i got i need sleep (laughs) i still have a regular job that is not this (laughs) exactly yeah i mean it's just uh only a certain amount of time and resources to be able to commit to it and just kind of ran out of it a little bit over the last week all right so let's get to wide receivers what do we really need out of this position in the draft david because the the wide receiver position is one that many people are saying is a huge need for the 49ers. But I think you and I have been on record in saying that it's probably not as big of a need as we think it is. And Shanahan, I think, would agree. The big wide receiver move, of course, was re-signing Marquise Goodwin. So what do you hope the Niners gain out of this draft at the wide receiver position? So this was something that I was really kind of struggling with as I'm deciding which players to kind of focus on, right? Because you don't really have, uh, again, time to go through every single receiver in this class. You're trying to like look at some of the other traits, like look at the athleticism scores, all that stuff to get a general idea of these players so that you know which ones to kind of focus in on, right? Spoiler alert, we don't have a big board with 250 prospects that we've all watched four or five games each. Nope. Um, so when you're trying to kind of narrow in on some of those guys, you know, I, I think a lot of fans and a lot of people in the media is, as well have kind of pointed to the need for this big kind of contested catch red zone weapon receiver, right? Give me somebody that's six, four, six, five, and can go up over the top of players. Um, and, and so we tried to look at a couple of those guys and there's a, f- a couple we're going to talk about here. Um, but the more that I kind of thought about it, I don't know that that's the type of receiver that Shanahan really likes in his offense. Um, And I also don't know that that's the type of receiver that fits really well with Jimmy Garoppolo. I think in order to make use of those type of guys, and you definitely can, there's a place for them in the NFL if you can win that way. But you need a quarterback that's willing to make those type of throws, right? To make the throws where guys aren't really open. You're just going to say, I'm going to throw this up and trust my guy to, to try and make a play here. And some quarterbacks are great at that, right? Some uh, are very trusting in their receivers. They're going to throw it up and they're, they're fine taking those chances. We haven't seen that from Garoppolo. So I went actually back and looked at his stats from last year. When it came to just throwing how many of his, the percentage of his throws that were contested in general was actually relatively high. It was like top five. But a lot of those were were more like tight window throws in the intermediate area. When you looked at deep throws, especially, so over 20 yards in the air, had only two. So of his, I believe, 176 total attempts last year, had two of them that were contested down the field. It's just not something, and maybe that's because, you know, you could surely make the argument that they didn't have anybody that could do that last year. So that's why he didn't make a lot of them. And that may be the case. Um... I don't know that I'm ready to go that direction. I think it just may be a thing that he isn't super into. I think he kind of works the intermediate area a little bit better, prefers to throw to some some tight windows there, guys with separation. And I think Shanahan definitely prefers guys that can separate. So I think we're going to try to look at some guys that fit that mold as well. So with that in mind, let's get to the first player that we're going to tackle. And that's someone that actually David originally had removed off of the list of players to tackle. And I watched him first and I text David and I was like, David, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say we're going to add this dude back in. Uh, and, and I waited for David to watch him. And, and 
of course, the response was, yeah, I think I like him a lot. Uh, and that player is <laughs> DJ Moore out of Maryland. DJ Moore out of Maryland, let's start with the context. What do the, the draft Knicks and draft Twitter say about DJ Moore? Well, number one is PFF position rank is five. And his inside the pylon or ITP position rank is first. He is their top graded wide receiver at inside the pylon. What ITP also does, which I think is really neat, is they also grade players. They give them a numeric score that projects what they think this player is going to do in the pros. I often like this better than I like straight up like what round are they going to get drafted in because that's always relative. You might have a super stack position where you get someone in round three like let's say Akella Witherspoon that in a year with poor a poor corner class he's like one of the top three corners and goes in the first round. Right. So I think rounds are, are kind of subjective or, or kind of based on the, the strength of the class whereas a score helps you compare players across different years so that you can say well this player is an eight and that compares to this other player who's an eight. And it's a bit, I think, easier to compare oranges to oranges. And their scale is one to nine, right? Yes, their scale okay. is one to nine. Uh, it's also the scale that I think some um, some scouting services use because there are scouting services that teams buy um, yeah. kind of scouting reports from. And that's a very, very common scale. So DJ Moore got an eight out of nine. And that eight score means that they project that he'll be a very good player, a rookie starter, and should have Pro Bowl physical traits. So speaking of physical traits, David, what's his athleticism score like? Uh, it's pretty good. Um, so he was a 97th percentile spark score guy, um, was the second overall among wide receivers in this class. Um, very, very good athlete. And I think that's something um, that is uh, very noticeable with his tape. Um, from a production standpoint, he was somebody that is is one of those guys that I think everybody kind of likes and feels comfortable with when you get better every season in your college career, right? You kind of have this linear improvement. He was one of those guys. His role increased every single season that he was at Maryland and graded out better with each of those seasons. Um, last year, especially was a huge part of Maryland's offense um, was targeted on 36% of his routes, which is like an incredibly high number. You really don't see guys uh, approach that at the NFL level. Um, this was the third highest in this draft class. It's just he was a big, big part of their passing game and was featured really heavily for them last year. So in terms of production, he did very, very well. Now, why we're interested, it's because of his athleticism shows up on tape and he threatens defenses at all three levels. He is a player that can really win with separation and his route running already is really, really smooth. The way that he sinks his hips and gets in and out of breaks is really astounding. He is able to catch the ball away from his frame. He does some really good things with the ball in his hands. I just think that he is more like the wide receivers that Shanahan prefers in their system or in his system than, you know, a straight up six, five guy who can jump high and catch the ball sometimes. Right. Um, and, and when you think of a player that, okay, this wide receiver class isn't necessarily strong at the top. There's no clear number one. There's a lot of guys that are bunched and, and it's kind of which flavor of wide receiver do you want? He really is someone I think that could, really, really shine in a Shanahan scheme because it puts his athleticism on display and he's already got the route running kind of set it. And he's already got that figured out, I think. Right. Um, and so I feel like overall that he would be a great addition. I think the question is going to be whether or not he's there when the Niners pick. That's such a, like a, the toughest part of this, right? Is And that's part of the reason why initially. So there were two things that uh, kind of why I initially took him off the list of, of players that we were going to cover in this was one, 
whether he was actually going to be there. I knew that there were some people that really liked him as the number one receiver in this class. Obviously, ITP, you mentioned, is one of those. I think Josh Norris has him as his uh, wide receiver one in this class. A lot of people really like DJ Moore, so it was like, okay, I don't know that he's going to be there. Also, um, without before I do my research, that's what I get, um, thought that he was a little bit smaller and yeah, you had him a, slot a slot guy. guy. And I was like, look, man, we got Trent Taylor. I don't need that bullshit. Get out of here. That was the text that David sent me back. I was like, David, I think we really need to, to leave DJ Moore in there. And he texted back. He's like, I don't know. I'm just worried that he's more of a slot guy. And I was like, just wait. Just wait. Four <laughs> <And> hours so, <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah. And so so you get to watch him, right? And he's actually uh, a bit bigger than that. So I think he was um, at six foot even at the combine and a little over 200 pounds, 210 pounds or so. Um, funny enough was the exact, I was like, that seems kind of like Pierre Garcon to me. Like that's, that's like around his size, right? He's like not a huge guy, but he's not small either. Right. Exact same measurements coming out of, uh, college as Pierre Garcon, exact same 40 time as well at the combine. So it was like a four, four, two guy. Um, and I think you see a little bit of that toughness in his game, right? So you mentioned the route running, the ability to separate there is definitely a big part. Um, but you see some toughness after the catch. You see some toughness in the ability to, again, he's not a big contested catch guy, but he can make catches in traffic, right? He can fight off guys at the top of the route to get separation. So there's some physicality to his game there that that I really like um, and I think is interesting. But really, yeah, it's that ability to separate, I think, is something that Shanahan prefers. You know, you have receivers that can either... Um, you know, again, win at the catch point there, the, the big guys, the contested catch guys, you have guys that can either win at the top of their route, right? With their route running, the ability to separate, or sometimes you have guys that are just so quick off the ball and, and so fast downfield that they can really win right off the get off. So I think you're looking at those different phases and Shanahan really prefers the guys that can separate with their route running. And, and I think this is, uh, probably the best guy in this class that we were able to watch in that regard. I just remember his game against Texas because I had no idea who DJ Moore was at the time. Watching the game opener versus Texas, I was, of course, excited because we had our coach. We should be ranked this year. And all of a sudden, we lose the game 51-41 to Maryland, and he puts up 7 for 133 with a 19 per catch average and a touchdown. I'm like, ah, Jesus. Um, yeah, and great. I mean, great after the catch, right? So like really 19, after after, 19 yards per catch is really good. You usually think of like a downfield threat with that type of yep. average. Um, dude averaged like nearly seven yards after the catch per reception uh, over his college yep. career. Really dynamic in that regard. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot to like there. I think the big question, again, I think the discrepancy between ITP and PFF uh, position ranks there kind of tells you what you need to know about the top of this class and that there's no clear cut winner. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if he was the first wide receiver off the board. It wouldn't surprise me if he was, you know, still available there when the Niners pick at the end of the second round. Like that's just kind of how those guys are lumped together at the top. All right. So let's get to the other big name and it's a big man and it's both because I love his name. And part of the reason that I threw him on here just to begin with was just because of his name. Turns out he's actually kind of good, but it's Equinemius St. Brown at a Notre Dame. I just, I want to say that all of the time. Equinemius St. Brown. <laughs> Equinemius St. Brown. Like, I'm never going to get tired of that. It's great. Strong name. Context. His PFF position rank is 7th overall. His ITP position rank is 13th. His grade in ITP was 7.25. And that means that he's a good starter that you can win with, or his projection is that he's a good starter that you can win with, and he may be an immediate contributor. He, as an athlete, he's actually pretty good for such a big dude. I mean, he's like, what, 6'4"? Uh, and, um, and 210. Nearly 6'5". Yeah, yeah, like just a shade under 6'5". Uh, and, and he's in the 62nd percentile for Spark. His production, he's got solid two-year production. He had a peak grade of 83.9. That's a PFF grade. Uh, and that came in 2016. 
but of course, the thing that you're looking for when you're talking about St. Brown is you're like, okay, this, this dude's 6'5". He's that big contested catch monster. The problem is when you look at him on tape, he may not, that may not be where he wins. Yeah, it's tough because, you know, he kind of had more of a down year production wise um, once Kaiser left, you know, last year, all of his numbers kind of took a little bit of a dip, only caught 37 and a half percent of his contested targets, um, which is much lower than you would like to see for somebody his size, especially. I mean, guys kind of at the top of the of that mark are usually somewhere above 50 percent, you know, maybe inching closer to that 60 percent mark. Um, So just didn't have a ton of success there. And I think when you get to like why we're interested in, right, part of it is because, okay, we, we did want to look at some guys that fit that big receiver mold um, that a lot of fans want to hear about. But I think for him, it really comes down to he's a tools guy, right? So a big guy that moves well for his size. I really think that he does move a little bit better than most of the tall contested catch receivers in this class. So I think you see some size and athleticism that's there. And he's flashed at points the ability to kind of win at all three levels, right? Short, intermediate. One of them was against Texas last year with Kaiser, which I guess uh, is a theme, apparently. We're just picking people that beat (laughs) Texas. And and so you've seen it a little bit, but he hasn't really put it all together. And and so that's where you get into this situation. Okay, we got the tools that we like to see. Um, You know, I think he's got pretty good hands and, and did show some good ability in some of those contested catch situations. It just wasn't consistent. So you're kind of taking a chance on a guy that has a lot of raw ability that hasn't put it together yet. And so you look at another guy in this class that I think uh, is, is, again, in the same kind of range where I think people are expecting him to get drafted is Marcel Aitman from Oklahoma State. So context with him. Eighth, so right directly behind St. Brown uh, in PFF position rank. Actually not ranked by ITP. Um, but you see the dip in athleticism with him. So he's kind of more of your, your I guess, traditional big guy, which he doesn't move all that well. He's going to win one way. 27th percentile spark score. Um, did produce at a high level in that Oklahoma State offense. So he was second in yards per route run uh, at over three and a half last season. And did really well against press, which I think is a good thing to see. And if you're going to be that big physical guy, you can't get stuck at the line because you're not separating from anyone, right? You don't have that sort of athleticism. Caught 15 of 20 attempts against press for 250 yards and three touchdowns, uh, which was the second best passer rating when throwing to a receiver versus press coverage uh, in this entire draft class. So uh, really good stuff there in uh, that regard against press. So why are we interested in someone like Marcel Aitman? Well, we're interested because he is the contested catch guy that Equinemia St. Brown really should be. His combination of contested catch ability and effectiveness versus press make him a really good option in the red zone, and that's something the 49ers lack. When we think about what the team needs, they could use a bigger dude that they could deploy in the red zone, and that could be someone like Aitman. Now, I know that St. Brown's going to get pegged as that guy, but I think Aitman's probably the better contested catch player at this point, at least projection coming out of college. And it's just that his athleticism really didn't show on tape. And and it was really worrisome because he wasn't going to run away from people. Um, He was going to win through people, and he was going to win at the point of attack where DBs just were not going to be able to to interrupt what he wanted to do. And and I don't know that I'm going to draft, depending on, again, who knows where he gets drafted, right? But if we're thinking of like second, third round, depending on where people have him, I don't know that you draft a guy like that uh, in that area. Once you start getting much later, I think, yeah, sure, why the hell not? Because you take that production and you sacrifice the athleticism. I think the other thing to consider with both these guys, kind of last point, so this is the last really big guy that we're going to cover in any sort of depth. 
but there are a ton of big contested catch receivers in this class. So once you get beyond guys like St. Brown and Aitman and you get a little bit further. So in, in terms of PFF position rank guys that are in the late teens and twenties, I mean, there's Dion Kane from Clemson. There's Jamon Moore from Missouri, uh, Alan Lazard from Iowa state, Auden Tate who visited with the Niners from Florida state. Um, DJ Chark is uh, from LSU is an interesting guy because he's a big contested catch guy, but he's also super fast. So he can win downfield with speed as well. Um, Jaleel Scott from New Mexico state. Uh, there are a bunch of guys that this is kind of the thing that they do. You can see Steve Palazzolo was the guy that did most of the wide receiver scouting reports in the PFF guide. And you can see on the summary, he's just struggling to find ways to like repurpose the same type of summary <laughs> for all of these big contested catch receivers. So yeah, if it comes down to, you know, St. Brown and Aitman are kind of more at the top uh, of that group. Um, but I don't know that like they're worth really taking a chance on, especially if you don't know and, and feel really comfortable that Garoppolo is going to take advantage of them. Get a guy in the fifth, sixth, seventh round that's one of those other guys and and see if it works out. Yeah, I think for me, I'd probably prefer, given Gar- Garoppolo's tendencies, I'd probably prefer someone like a St. Brown as long as people don't confuse him as, with, as the contested catch guy because that's yeah. not his game and that's not how he plays. So let's get to Dante Pettis. And Dante Pettis is someone who, much like uh, Aitman, who we were talking about earlier, came on my radar because he had a visit with the 49ers. And I was like, oh, let's take a look at this guy. He's from Washington. And then uh, I think it was PFF Jeff who posted how many punt return touchdowns he had. And I was like, ooh, let's take a look. <laughs> because that is one of the things that a wide receiver can bring to you that we didn't, that we haven't talked about thus far. And that's uh, someone in the punt return game. Right now, I would say the 49ers punt return game is, well, lacking. Yeah. Um, DJ Moore, by the way, also, I think, has some ability in this Oh, absolutely. In this absolutely. Continue. Um, so Dante Pettis, uh, for context, as a wide receiver, his PFF position rank is 14th. His ITP position rank is 11th. And his grade is 7.25, which, if you'll remember, is not too far away uh, from one of the other players that we've already covered, and that's Equinemia St. Brown. He also had a 7.25 grade, which, as a reminder, is a good starter you can win with and may be an immediate contributor. Now, Dante Pettis' athleticism is, you know, kind of up in the air because he hasn't tested due to a lingering ankle injury suffered late in the season. But when you watch the tape, dude's fast. And and he's not like that, I'm just straight line fast. Like, he is, he's he's football fast, I would say. I think in a foot race, he probably loses to a lot of players. But he's got ridiculous agility. He's got a really good feel for the game. And he's someone who has, he, he, clears the requisite bar of athleticism that you want sure. for someone who is going to play the wide receiver position and for someone who's going to uh, succeed as a punt returner. Definitely. And I think um, that's kind of the place to start with his production. You know, the nine touchdowns, of course, set an NCAA record. Um, he was PFF's highest graded punt returner in the nation uh, last season, the fifth highest uh, in 2016, the year before. So, um, yeah, it's not just the, the flash ones like he's one. Of, he's been one of the best punt returners in college football for the last couple seasons here. Um, he's a sure handed guy, only dropped seven passes out of one hundred and sixty nine catchable targets during his four year career at Washington. Um, so I think, yeah, the, from a production standpoint, it's been solid. You know, again, the returnability definitely adds kind of this other element that that is uh, you know, a little bit different from some of the other guys that we've talked about. I think why we're interested 
obviously the punt returns are, are, are fascinating. I think that part is uh, certainly adds to his value. So I'm actually curious about this because, David, you did a lot of special teams work for PFF in college. This basically that was your life. Um, one of my one of my great joys this football season was waiting for the inevitable text of <laughs> David during the week when he was doing analysis work. And, and every single week it was college special teams are fun or some variation of that phrase. And you yeah. just sent me a clip of something ridiculous, like a punter missing the punt entirely, picking the ball up, trying to kick it again, it getting blocked, having someone return it and then them fumbling and having the original punting team pick it up for a first down. Like that was the kind of shit you would send me. I will. I, I definitely prefer the really bad college football special teams. <laughs> uh, Got to be honest. Like the oh my god, the worst plays are like some of my favorite. Um, so I think from a punt returner standpoint, uh, especially a returner standpoint in general, um, you're really looking at them a lot the same way that you would look at a ball carrier on offense in the open field, right? So it's a lot of the same stuff. You're looking for the vision to be able to find lanes and, and kind of. Uh, you want you want a guy that at least maximizes the stuff that's blocked for him, right? You don't want him leaving yards on the table. So I think that's kind of the baseline. And then, of course, you're looking for guys that can make people miss and, and uh, create broken tackles, create those big plays. And so I think a lot of those type of skills translate. Um, the interesting thing that I, I thought with Pettis in particular is you see all of that stuff on the punt returns, and it's great. Um I don't know that I saw that a lot with him on offense. I didn't get the same feeling watching him offensively. So I think he's a, a I think he's a pretty good route runner, and I think he can he can get open in that regard. I think he's just as a receiver is kind of ant though. It's like he's just kind of solid, right? Yeah. He can get open uh, again, sure handed, but I don't see any of that same like sort of uh, big playability there in his game as a receiver that you see. Uh, from him on the punt return aspect. So it's, it's kind of a little weird to me. You know, for me, when I watched him, I thought that he was the second, he had the second best route running of the players that we watched. So Aitman, St. Brown, you know, to DJ Moore. I thought that's where he was in terms of route running. And it's mostly because of his ability to sink his hips and get in and out of those speed cuts. Like that, that to me is what really separated him from someone like a, a St. Brown or an Aitman. Aitman really couldn't do it. And that's just because of his athleticism. And, and so I think that is what between that and his hands, I think you know you're you're giving up some of the other things, but you catch the ball and you can be an electric punt returner. And I think that has some legit value in the NFL. I really think it does. And and I think that if he's got the ability to read those blocks and he's got that kind of run after the catch ability, and if what you're telling me is that it's not too different in a punt return, I feel like maybe he can put some of that together yeah. and and eventually be kind of a late round guy that that is never is never gonna be the guy, but if what we've learned, if we've learned anything about, especially the 49ers and wide receiver courses, that you don't need a guy. Sure. You need a compilation of players that end up winning in ways that overall win you games. Definitely. And and I feel like Pettis can really fit that mold, especially because he's going to be one of the guys who's going to be around, I feel like, a little bit later, unless someone gets completely completely enamored with his punt return skills. Yeah, I think where he goes is going to be key, and, and the round there certainly determines like how I would feel about that sort of pick. Um, because, again, re- like return value is uh, is real, but like NFL punters are pretty good, right? They're going to be able to steer clear of a lot of those guys and kind of minimize that to a degree. What round do you um, take him in? What round would you feel comfortable taking someone with the profile of a Pettis? I wouldn't feel great about it until about the fifth round. 
I think okay. somewhere in that ballpark in this class um, makes sense because I, I think that he tops out from what I've seen as a receiver is at best like and, and not talking about like depth chart one, two, three, but more like uh, production one, two, three. Like I think his best case scenario is that he can work his way into like being the third most productive receiver on your team. And I think that might be even a little bit much. Um so I don't know. Yeah, I think he's, you know, he's solid there. He doesn't bring anything special that I can really rely on. Like, again, I like to have those receivers that if they do one thing really, really well that I know they can count on, I think that's when you start to piece together your receiving core in a way that really works. He's just kind of like solid across the board as a receiver. Yeah. So what you're saying is that he's the kind of guy that you warned everyone to stay away from initially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think the returnability is is what makes him him more intriguing uh, than maybe some other guys with that type of skill set yeah. as a receiver. Interesting. So let's get to the running back position then. And this was a position that we, I thought we were going to solve in the draft if we didn't get some, you know, maybe Dion Lewis or Jarek McKinnon. And then guess what? Hey, we signed Jarek McKinnon. So <laughs> all of a sudden, this position is not as much of a big deal, but you still are looking to get something out of this position, especially because Joe Williams at this point has a huge question mark over his head. So, David, what do you think we need out of the running back position in this year's draft? So I think unlike with receiver to a degree, um, running back, I think it's it's mostly you want versatile guys. Like I would rather have three guys that can kind of do everything um, as opposed to that kind of split up. So I think this is another area where running back, you see a smaller guy like Brita, you see a smaller guy like McKinnon, and everybody's like, we need a big bruising you know, downhill back. Uh, and it's funny, like the guys that we picked are all pretty good size, but that's the size isn't what really drew me to them, at least. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like maybe an added bonus, but that's not really their game necessarily. Um, and so I think you really you're looking again. We talked about this all offseason long. They have to be able to do something in the passing game. So I think there's at least um, some reason to believe that all these guys can contribute as a receiver. And then you're just looking for, again, for them to kind of excel in one of those areas that makes you feel really good about how they fit. So I think that, and, and this is, again, just a complete guess, just based on what what Shanahan has said in, in press conferences and press reports. And, but I think that Coleman and Freeman and what they could do were Shanahan's ideal backfield. Agree. I think that's what he wants out of his backfield. And what were Coleman and and... What was Devonta Freeman? Well, Devonta Freeman was a sneakily good inside runner um, that could also run, you know, some outside zone. But he was going to be more of your kind of thumper all around back who had some value in the passing game because he could catch the ball. But that's not where he won. He won more. He was on, a pretty. I think he gets underrated as a receiver. And 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 Tevin Coleman, on the other hand, he was your receiving kind of Swiss Army knife back sure. that you you could probably run him on outside zone, and that's probably where he won the most. But you were not going to run him in between the tackles. I think that when you look at the Niners' current roster construction, I think that's what he wanted to do with Joe Williams and Matt Breida. I thought Joe. I thought I think Shanahan was looking at uh, Joe Williams as his Tevin Coleman type, maybe with fewer receiving skills, and Matt Breida as more of his inside runner. And turns out he hit on one of them. He hit on Matt Breida as more of the inside runner guy. Although I would say he probably wins better at outside zone than inside zone. And and now I feel like he has his receiving back in Jarek McKinnon. And so I think that's probably where most of, of his his focus and capital is going to be. So do you think that that he's going to complement this core with a backup to that? 
and try and maybe like plan for the future because we know McKinnon's deal is basically two years and we can pull the root cord and we're good? Mm. Um, or do you think that he's going to try and get another skill set that we can leverage and and just say, you know, off we go? You know, I would guess because I, one of the things he said, I, I forget if it was during the owner's meeting or at some point this offseason, he mentioned like with backs, we're not looking for that like compliment, right? The 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 big guy, the bruiser and like all the different things, right? We, we want good backs, it, which is something that it's funny because like this was like what Chip Kelly said about receivers. And I don't think that we really agree with receivers. Like, I think that's definitely an area that you need complimentary players but in the backfield, you don't want to have guys that really tip what you're doing. So you don't want to have the guy that's only the third down guy that you know anytime he's on the field. Well, they're throwing the ball, right? And then the guy that's, um, you know, let's say like a lighter version of Adrian Peterson because obviously Adrian Peterson was so good as a runner that that it overcome uh, overcame a lot of things. But the guy that you know isn't a receiving threat, right? So the likelihood that your team's going to run when he's on the field is much, much higher um, I don't know that he's going to go that direction either. And so I think you, you're looking for a guy that has some semblance of balance. If I had to say that he's going to lean one direction, I would say that the thing that they need is um, somebody who's more of a pure runner, right? Is maybe the one, the direction. But I, I think you, you can't go to guys that have no receiving ability whatsoever. I don't think he's going to be interested in those type of players. Yeah, because he just let one of those go. Uh, yeah. Not let him go, but uh, was comfortable with him signing somewhere else. And that would be right. Carlos Hyde. So let's get to the running backs then. And and first on the list is going to be Royce Freeman, which it's taken all of me to not say Hoyce, by the way. Uh, Hoyce Gracie. Uh, in Portuguese, the R is not a is not a R. It's a H or something like that. I don't speak Portuguese all that well. I just get drunk and speak Spanish and <laughs> sure. slur and consider it Portuguese. Uh, for all of those that are listening in Brazil, I know we have a couple of them, including uh, uh, just I'm sorry immediately. But Royce Freeman, Oregon, context. His pro football focus position rank is 7th. His ITP rank, 7th. His score is 7.49, which is a little better than the 7.25 that you're familiar with. But by and large, what that 7.4 score means, it means that he is near the top end of an area where you can ha- where you can be a good starter and that you can win with. Should compete for a role or a starting position, maybe an immediate contributor. That's that 7 to 7.5 range, and so he ranks right below there. His athleticism is surprisingly not like spectacular. It's not bad, but it's not spectacular. Mm-hmm. He's in the 54th percentile for P Spark uh, or for Spark. So that means that, you know, there's like it's half, half the players in the NFL at his position are going to be worse uh, in terms of in terms of athleticism. So uh, what about his production, David? Because his production was really one of the things that drew you to him immediately. Definitely. So I think the thing with Freeman is he has produced at an incredibly high level. It just wasn't his most recent season, right? So I think with Moore, we talked about that linear progression in production that that I think a lot of people prefer and makes you feel comfortable. Uh, Freeman had his best season in 2015, um, had the highest grade of any player in this draft class that season, tied for the highest grade um, at 924 and then has kind of been a little bit more up and down. 2016 was a little bit more down, bounced back to a degree last season, but not quite to the same level that he was at there. So uh, he's produced, I mean, at least solid grades in every season that he was there at Oregon. But it does make you feel a little bit weird knowing that his best season was three years ago. So why the hell are we interested in someone like uh, Hoyce Royce Freeman? Well, it's because what he does on tape is really, really good. I was actually surprised. I didn't look up his athleticism score until after I watched his tape. 
And I was surprised that it was that low. He exhibits really good bursts through the hole. He reads his blocks incredibly well. His mental processing, I thought, in the way that he reads his blocks, he is that guy that is like that one cut runner, especially on zone. And he, Oregon runs a ton of zone. I mean, they run yeah. zone exclusively, right? And he was able to successfully read his blocks on just about every on every play that I saw. He, and, yeah, he's a guy that maximizes what yeah, is blocked. Exactly. Especially. And so I think it was really, really easy to project him as a runner to the 49ers scheme because the Niners run, of course, in an inordinate amount of zone and they run a lot of outside zone. And and I feel like, OK, immediately he could really maximize the blocking that the 49ers are going to give him. And even though his athleticism score overall isn't super high, he's got really, really good short area burst. And he's got the ability to to zoom through a hole really quickly, even if he doesn't have the top end speed to take it to the house. I think the the only thing that I would add there for something that really interests me about him is more than the other guys that we're going to talk about who I think are going to be ultimately drafted a bit later than Freeman's going to go, I would guess. Um, Freeman is able to create stuff on his own outside of his blocking a little bit better than those guys. So he averaged more yards after contact per carry than the guys we're going to talk about after this. Um, you know, especially when it comes to forcing missed tackles, dude forced in that, that peak 2015 season forced 80 missed tackles that season. Um, you know, dropped down again a little bit the following two years, but he, he's somebody that can create a little bit when the blocking's not there. And I do think that e- even though I know that you you don't necessarily say, well, you don't need like that big bruiser back. You don't you know, Brandon Jacobs of the world are no longer in vogue. I do think you want someone on your roster with a bit more size. And, and he I mean, he's not a small dude. He's like 230 pounds or whatever it is. And and I feel like he is able to win and, and use his size to win and work through tackles and keep his legs going. I think he would be a fantastic addition at the running back position. I just don't know. You know, similarly, we have no idea where the hell he's going to go. And and the later, of course, that that he goes, the better and more palatable he becomes. But I just don't know that if he does go in that two, three round area, I don't know that I would expend draft capital in that area to pick up someone like him considering the stable of backs we've already got. And he's a solid receiver, too. I mean, uh, you know, was targeted 89 times in his career, which is actually, you know, surprisingly, there's not a lot of colleges that really use backs heavily as receivers. Um, so a lot of times you, you just don't get a lot of snaps to see those guys at the college level be receivers. But he had a little bit more. I mean, it's a lot of screen stuff at Oregon for sure. Um, but produced enough there that, again, you, you, you think that that can be a skill that he could potentially translate to the NFL. So I don't think he's necessarily a guy that you're only counting on on first down. So if that's Royce Freeman from Oregon, let's move to someone from Auburn. And that's Curion Johnson. Now he's got two R's. And if we've learned anything from Gary Guillaume, uh, it's that I'm probably going to pronounce it as just Gerion Johnson. Uh, because you know what? Why not? So Gerion Johnson, Curion Johnson from Auburn, context. His PFF position rank is 8th. His ITP rank is 8th. And his score is 7.25, which, again, if you've been listening, you already know. Uh, a lot of is, guys in that range. Yeah, is someone who's a starter that you can win with. So... Curion Johnson, his athleticism is is higher than Royce Freeman. He's a 69th percentile spark athlete, which means that nice uh, is yeah, what that means. That's exactly right. He's yep. he's basically Gronk Spark is what it is. <laughs> that's that's exactly what it is. Is that like uh, similar to the All Spark or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it just like it's a powder, and you put it in a drink, 
Uh, and you know, it gives you, it allows you, allows you many, many hours of things. Uh, so production, he improved every season at Auburn, his 89.6 overall grade in 2017 ranked sixth among all running backs. And most importantly, and this is something that you can't say for poor old Royce Freeman is that Curry on Johnson is a fantastic pass blocker. So he didn't allow a sack from 89 pass blocking snaps for a pass blocking efficiency score of 95.8, which was a top 25 mark in this draft in this draft class. If I'm staring at the barrel of a Royce Freeman gun, the one thing I don't want him to do is pass block. Even though that dude is big, he does not pass block very well. I mean, I would say like him and Carlos Hyde are probably on par in terms of pass blocking, and Carlos <laughs> Hyde was not very good. I mean, in his defense, most backs have some work to do coming out of uh, out of college in that regard. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, this was an area I think, uh, we saw a little bit better performance from carry on Johnson. Um, you know why we're interested to me, carry on, not curry on carry on. I'm pretty sure. Oh man. Yeah. I, yeah. Again, I names. You didn't watch any Auburn games? No. Whatever. Despite my love for Gus Malzahn, <laughs> I tear my heart out with Texas every Saturday when I do watch football on Saturday. Um, so I think carry on Johnson is interesting because I think he's a really good fit schematically. I think he's a very good zone runner. He has that kind of smoothness to his, his, uh, to his running. Um, that's like really reminiscent. I've seen the Arian Foster. So I, I normally am not good. I don't like giving comparisons. I'm not good at giving comparisons, but I've seen a, a few different people throw out Arian Foster for Karen Johnson. And I think that's like a very apt comparison to his running style so it's this kind of like smooth gliding run to the hole and then he's got enough burst to get through it on those zones right that one cut get downhill uh and be able to get what's there and what's blocked for you um i think he doesn't have quite the short area quickness that somebody like freeman has so he's not really going to create at the line of scrimmage in that same way he is going to be somebody where you know you want to kind of block it up well get him into the second level and once he's into the second level, he has enough athleticism to make and kind of turn that into some big plays, right? Um, and, and so I think from a fit standpoint, he's maybe my favorite guy of the backs that, that we watched. Um, and I, again, can be a factor on all three downs. You mentioned the pass blocking. I think he's solid as a receiver as well. So um, that sort of full complement of skills there is intriguing for him. This was a guy that was a bit more difficult for me to see in, in 49ers red and gold. I didn't see the fit as much as I did for someone like Royce Freeman. Despite that pass blocking efficiency, I think that especially given his size and his ability to win and zone and, and his just his short area quickness, I was just I was enamored with it. So I'd probably put Freeman above Johnson. Um, I, I wouldn't be mad if we had someone like Johnson. It would just be a bit more difficult for me to see that fit overall. Yeah. I don't know that you need so like short area quickness, I think, is generally preferred in a lot of schemes in the NFL. With this outside zone heavy though it's not really as important because you're not really looking to make those kind of moves, you know, yeah. around the line of scrimmage. Things right? develop a bit longer. Yeah, it it's, takes a little it's, bit. it's more about patience, giving your offensive line a chance to get those blocks settled, allow the crease to develop. And then once you see that crease and, and you make your reads to be able to get downhill and have that burst to get through. And that's where his athleticism is a little bit more straight line, which I think is a good fit for that scheme, right? It's I can get going i can accelerate in a hurry i'm not going to move laterally quite as well so last running back that we're going to cover is kalen ballage from arizona state the context on him is his position rank is 11th overall based on pro football focuses rankings his itp rank is 13th 
Now, his score, we're going to have to dig into some new scores here because his score is 6.49. And so that puts him at the top of a range from 6 to 6.49. And that means that he's a flash starter or has flash starter tools. He's a quality role player and a good special teamer and an emergency starter. His athleticism is, well, he's an 89th percentile spark guy. So his athleticism is high, very, very high. And his production is, is pretty good as well. He produced well in all phases at various points of his college career. The problem was it was just never all in the same season. And he struggled to produce on his own after contact. 2.7 yards per carry after contact over his career is, well, not that great. Um, there, there, there's a player from, I think, Louisiana Tech who's like 5'6", that averaged 3.9 yards uh, after contact. And, uh, well, Kalen Ballage is bigger, much bigger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think the guys, like, toward the top end of this class, like, uh, are in that high three range, right? Like, Barkley, yeah. I think, was at 3.5. Uh, Nick Chubbs at, like, 3.7. So so why are we interested in Ballage at all? Um, so I think two things really pointed me to, to take a, a deeper look at it uh, at Ballage. One, Jordan Plocker of PFF, who was the guy that initially mentioned Matt, Matt Breida to me last year. Um he thought that that he would be a very good. So Jordan is a, a very big Pac-12 guy. So is usually really uh, in tune with the guys there uh, in, in what their kind of skill sets are and thought that he would be a player that Bobby Turner would really like. Um, and then the spark score, right? So the athleticism, we know that the 49ers like top end athleticism at that position, right? Brita and McKinnon were both just spark studs right at top of their draft class uh type of athleticism numbers so he brought that type of athleticism to the table he's the one where i think you're a late round guy the big athlete and and you're banking on that for somebody that hasn't really put it all together because again you mentioned that uh it was never all in the same season his production it was like one year he produced well as a runner and didn't really do all that much as a receiver another year he was really good as a receiver um, his last season there, I believe, he showed some uh, pretty good ability as a returner. So it was just never all there. So you're, t- you're you're counting on a guy like Bobby Turner that can identify what fits in his scheme to be able to say, okay, I like the tools this guy has to work with. He has the athleticism we like. And I think that I can kind of make something of him as a late-round player. I, I don't think that he's a guy that you're really considering before probably like again around like the fifth round i think that kind of late day three is is really where uh i would feel comfortable with him going so last but certainly not least we get to the tight ends and ultimately i think out of the tight end position the if you're going to draft a guy you're going to want to draft a tight end that is still going to excel in the passing game i think in terms of roster need the niners are probably going to do well to find a run blocking tight end the replacement for logan paulson but much like you said before the show, David, which you know is not on tape, so the listeners here don't know that you said this, so <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and let them know that you can find blocking tight ends at pretty readily. Um, it's not uncommon to find them. I mean, hell, we found Logan Paulson on the scrap heap. Um, and, and despite his name being Logan Paulson, we will send him back to said scrap heap. So I don't know that the, that the skill of a run-blocking tight end is necessarily scarce, but the skill of a good receiving tight end can be scarce. And so those are the players that you want to draft, and those are the players that we're going to focus on. So with that in mind, let's get to the only guy who really did anything for me uh, in my draft evaluation, and that's going to be Mike Asiki, mostly because he jumped over a quarterback. Not going to lie. <laughs> I was watching his tape. <laughs> 
It was one of the last guys I watched, and I was getting kind of bored. I was like, okay, I'm going to, like, how many times can this guy split out wide and run, like, one of the same four routes? Because let's get a little varied here. <laughs> and and then he jumps over a quarterback, and I'm like, okay, that's exciting. That's exciting. You brought me back. You jumped over a quarterback. This is good. Yeah, I mean, he's the guy that's kind of um, at the top of that second tier of tight end in this class um, that's below Mark Andrews from Oklahoma and Dallas Goddard from South Dakota State, North Dakota State, one of the Dakota states. South Dakota, I think. I think it's South Dakota. It's a directional school, so I'm not going to put too much effort into it, but South Dakota Um, State. Which is another guy that actually, uh, Jordan um, was the first person that I heard of this from. He actually uh, was enough. So normally uh, with PFF, the only FCS games that we grade are games against FBS schools, but um, every once in a while you'll have prospects in the draft that come along that are good enough to warrant kind of going back and, uh, and watching all their stuff and grading all their games. And, and that was Goddard in this tight end class. Sorry. I looked up, uh, Goddard to try and find what school he went to. It was South Dakota state, but apparently when you Google Goddard or Godert, you get Godert.me, which is specially designed pins and jackets. So all <laughs> I, so I Googled it and all I read was Godert me. <laughs> it's just... And it was funny, and so I lost it. But continue, David. Oh, man. So I think Gusecki's in, in kind of that next level. I mean, the the athleticism is one of the first things that kind of makes you notice him. 99th percentile spark score. Top among tight ends in this draft class. Um, you know, right up there. That was George Kittle last year. George Kittle was the top guy uh, from an athleticism standpoint in last year's class. I think this class overall lacks the same type of athletes. There are only two I think tight ends um, or three tight ends, excuse me, with a spark score that's in the 70th percentile or higher in this class. Last year, there were 11. So there are a lot more athletic tight ends in last year's class. You don't see that really uh, it, this year. And, and Gusecki is one of the few guys that can do that. And that allows him to do things like split out into the slot and and be able to challenge vertically up the seam and, and make some contested catches and do those sort of things um, that you like in, in the middle of the field from today's tight ends. So with really all of the tight ends in this class that are worth drafting, like blocking is kind of a, a concern. It was really more of an afterthought for a lot of these guys at the college level. So they're all going to have some work to do there. But I think from a receiving ability, from an athleticism standpoint, if you're looking for, you know, we, we kind of dismissed a little bit the big receivers that, that are contested catch guys. Um, I think this may be an area where it makes a little bit more sense to go after one of these tight ends that are bigger that can kind of win in that same type of way. Yeah, I think if you're going to if you're going to go after a contested catch guy, it makes sense for that person to be a tight end, especially with the type of formational versatility that I think Shanahan values. It's going to be good to, to field two tight ends out there. It's something the Niners did a fair amount last season. I feel like even with the tight ends they had. And and can you imagine could you imagine how crazy it's going to be to have George Kittle, who was, I think, a 98th percentile spark guy. And let's say we draft someone like Gusecki in the third round and all of a sudden you've got a 99th percentile tight end athlete. I mean, that's 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 legit. It's putting a lot of stress on linebackers, right? So you, you, you come out in those type of formations. So you think when they're on the field, you're going to be in 12 personnel. So one back, two tight ends most of the time. I'm sure Shanahan will throw in. Um, some 22 and get juice on the field as well. And and when you're in those personnel groupings, defenses are going to match that with their base personnel. And so now you have linebackers. And we talked about, you know, uh, when we're talking about Roquan, the value of uh, a pass coverage linebacker, because there just aren't very many of them that can really do that all that well. 
Or if you're talking about Derwin James, which would erase one of the tight ends. Like, that's that's the value he brings. Most teams don't have that type of defender, right? So now you have two guys with this high-end athleticism that's really going to be able to outmatch most of the players that are those interior coverage players that they're going to go against. Um, So I think that's something that Shanahan really likes. And that's kind of the direction he's going. Teams are generally right or, or going to 11, spreading things out passing the ball a lot more Shanahan his one kind of tweak on it. He's one of the few teams that's going heavier personnel, but still spreading things out, right? He still wants to be able to split the, the running backs and the tight ends and the fullbacks out wide and, and take advantage of base personnel. Well, what he wants to do is he wants to attack individual players. Yeah. He wants to attack areas and he wants to attack players. And if he can make it pretty obvious for the quarterback as to where they should attack based on spreading the formation out, he's going to do just that. And, and I'm thinking in my mind, okay, so let's say that we draft someone like Gusecki. Let's say we've got George Kittle out there. Now you've got, as a pass-catching back, Jarek McKinnon. All of a sudden, that's a really, really dangerous formation. Um, People and, don't have that, those kind of linebackers that can match no, up with all those guys. No, they, they just don't. And so that's really the only player uh, in the tight end space that, that really kind of excited me. I would say that the other person we're going to cover here, Hayden Hurst out of South Carolina, is not someone that you know kind of gives me the feels. It was really kind of tough to find another tight end that I was really all that excited about. Um, I, I think there's a middle tier there that are a lot of guys that are very similar, and it's guys that are kind of middling athletes, right? Um, they're they're average, maybe a little below average. They're better receivers than they are um, run blockers, again, which is most of the tight ends in this class that are worth drafting. Um, but there's nothing really all that special about them i think they're they're guys that there's very little separation between them um hearst was a guy that stuck out just a little bit more i liked what his uh what he could do um as again that kind of big body and the contested catch stuff in the middle of the field and be able to work the seam um i think he offers a little bit more after the catch than a lot of these other tight ends in that group um and again he's somebody that can move around the formation a bit he can be in the slot he can be as an h-back um, he was again, 45th percentile spark. So nothing too exciting there. Um, but was just kind of a reliable guy, had a high catch rate in college. Um, again, showed some ability after the catch. So they're, I don't know. Yeah. The, the tight ends there, they're all kind of similar to me, but the one thing that I will say that was different with him that in a negative light is he's old. He's like 25. Um, well, that's a theme I feel like this which year is because weird. So Godert is also like 24, right? And or Goddard, Godert, I don't know. Is Man, he really? I didn't realize he was also an old guy. He is. He's he's on the older side of life. And yeah, if, he'll, yeah, he'll be 24 by the time the season starts. Man. Yeah. That, so so uh, some of the argument with these players because I think there was I think isn't this the argument with Calvin Ridley as well, which is that they are because they have because they're 24 years old effectively going up against 20 year olds. That extra four years of development, if you really think about it, I mean, at that point, you're like a second-year player in the NFL. That, that, those extra two years of physical and mental development are going to give you an, an somewhat of an advantage over the other, we'll call them kids, that you're playing against. This is an argument that is not new. It's an argument that hell, Malcolm Gladwell, I think, made in Outliers, right, where he's talking about how um, hockey teams oftentimes have players that are born in January because that's when the age cutoff is where you play – and so the older players end up getting like all-star training because they're just physically superior and then they end up just becoming better because they have better coaching and then all of a sudden you have a disproportionate of birthdays in January in the NHL. 
I, I'm pretty sure that's Outliers. I mean, I could be remembering incorrectly, but I'll, I'll take um, your word for it. Similar, Sounds similar like idea it. here, which is that they're just older, so they can outperform, and then they get to the NFL, and you know, you've got other 24 year olds who are like, "Nah, son, have a seat." Yeah, it's not something that I've paid too much attention to recently. I know at one point, Football Outsiders had a study that showed that receivers, especially older receivers, uh, tended to underperform at the NFL level. Like, you really like to have receivers that were coming off that like sophomore, junior year, um, and had that last season of be their like top season of production. Were tended to be the guys that uh, translated best to the NFL. It was uh, quite a while since uh, I believe that study happened. I haven't really paid attention to anything that's more recent, so I don't know if that's like still been true in recent seasons. But so it's a talk, little concerning. Let's talk Brandon Whedon. Kidding? Nope. Nope. Kidding? Yeah, there's another. I just saw another one. Another guy that's up there in that that same sort of range is uh, Jordan Akins from Central Florida. He's 26. Like, what's with all the old tight ends? That's usually that's usually BYU territory. Because usually BYU, the guys are a little older because they do their mission at 18. Right. So they don't start college until 20, which means they don't get out until they're 24. But this is not a BYU situation, so it's it's interesting. But No idea. I mean, I guess it all depends on where you think they can win. And personally, I think Godert's going to be just fine. Goddard, Godert, I don't care. Yeah, I mean, he would be a guy that we definitely would have talked about. I just think, he, I mean, he's likely to be the first tight end off, tight the, end board. off the board. Um, I think that late first round area makes a ton of sense for him. Um, at worst, it seems like maybe second behind Andrews. Um, but he's a guy considering that the 49ers don't pick until I think it's 59 again, late second round after that first rounder, they're just not going to be in a spot to take him. So I think that does it for this week's episode of the better rivals podcast. We covered a lot of players. Uh, we're going to put a list of the players that we covered in the show in the Niners nation notes. Uh, we may not put all of them in the episode description, but if you need a list, then go ahead and go to Niners Nation and you can see the list of players. If you like what you heard, definitely leave a review on iTunes or on the Google Play or anywhere you listen to podcasts. It helps other people discover the show. Or at the very least, just turn to the Niner friend to your left and let them know about the podcast. Even if they don't like listening to podcasts, just you know, tell them that it's good for pooping, apparently, because <laughs> I got so many poop emojis for people that listen to this podcast on the toilet. We even got a full photo of yeah. someone in a stall. True story. I mean, it's it's a lot. It's a lot to take. But, you know, I appreciate. These are the sacrifices that we make. Yeah. Know? Poop emojis uh, and stall poop photos. emojis and stall photos. That's right. So, thanks again for tuning in this week. But next week, we'll be back with Day 2 and Beyond for the defensive side of the ball. And as always, Go Niners! I'm Ashley Carmen. I'm Caitlin Tiffany. We're the hosts of Why'd You Push That Button, the Verge's show about all the choices technology forces us to make. We're back for season three, talking about questions like, why do you delete your tweets? And why do you type in lowercase letters that make you seem like a serial killer? And why are you on an exclusive dating app? You're not that special. <laughs> We're releasing a new episode every Wednesday, and you can find us anywhere you typically find podcasts, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts. So go ahead and subscribe and check us out.